Hi everyone, and welcome to House Wine. Uh, today we're going to be looking at everything Alsace. And this is a very exciting region that at times can be a little bit overlooked by those who are just starting off in their wine journey or their discovery of wine, because it often gets lumped into the mid-century sweet Rieslings that were mass produced in Germany. Um, and we'll talk about that more when we talk about Germany, but often when people think of Riesling, they think of, you know, this sort of sugary, sweet, high acid wine and believe me it is so much more. Alsace is a fascinating region with a focus on dry Rieslings which are incredibly complex, delicious and there's so much more to discover than even just that. So we're going to dive into it and just a little pre-context for this episode we're going to talk about history um, a lot more than we normally would uh, in the podcast because Alsace has just a really rich and um, wonderful history to it, and it's really important to understand that, to understand the wine. Uh, so the history part goes on for a little bit longer than we normally would do, and I'm going to recommend some amazing books if you're interested in reading more about it. Um, so like all episodes, I'm going to cite my sources at the top of the show, and you can read them also in the show notes, uh, and any wines that I reference will be in the show notes as well. So today I used, again, the Oxford Companion to Wine, the fourth edition by Jancis Robinson. I looked at the Wine Bible, the second edition by Karen McNeil, and I also referenced a lot one of my favorite wine books, uh, Wine and War by Don and P.D. Cladstrup. And we're going to kind of do an overview of the following. We're going to talk about the history, like I mentioned. Uh, we're going to go over some of the geography, um, sort of the rules of Alsace, the grapes and styles they make there, and then we'll talk briefly about a few of the key players. So let's get into it, and we're going to start right off with talking about history. So the history of Alsace is wonderful and unique when we discuss it in relation to the rest of France. It's located right in the northeastern corner of France and has pretty much been contested and fought over for the majority of its very long history. Farming in the region started around what they say uh, is 1500 uh, before Common Era and it was started by the Celts who settled the region for the purpose of agriculture because the Rhine River uh, flows right through the middle of it and it's flanked by the Vosges Mountains and by the Black Forest. So it was really an ideal region um, because of the river and the forests for growing crops. I mean, obviously they took a bit of the forests away so that they could grow their crops, but the land there was very ideal. It wasn't until exactly 58 BCE that the Romans invaded the region. Uh, they came through Germany where they had already begun growing Vitis vinifera, which is the wine grape, uh, and they claimed the region that is known as Alsace today as their own, as well as they made it a center for viticulture and began making wine. And for the better part of 1500 years, this was the status quo. Though the region changed hands a few times between empires, it was largely left alone to grow grapes and to be an agricultural center that was ruled by serfdoms. Then, in 1648, we're going to do a few dates here, the Treaty of Westphalia happened. And this is really interesting because that ended the 30-year war in Europe and made Alsace officially a part of France rather than of the Roman Empire. 
But things were a little tricky because Alsace is bordered on the east by the Vosges Mountains. So it was actually more difficult for them to trade with France, and they primarily traded with Germany. It was more economically viable. Most towns and villages preserved their own culture, what they considered to be an Alsatian culture, as opposed to integrating and being fully, and I'm using air quotes here, French. So they retained much of their Germanic culture to the point where Alsace was granted special dispensation from the French monarchy to remain part of the Lutheran church, which was part, which was the Germanic church, while France at the time was majority Catholic. And you can imagine that at this or during this time period, that was actually a pretty big deal. During this period also, there were still satellite towns and villages that were considered to be part of Germany, and it wasn't until 1678, some 30 years after the Treaty of Westphalia, that France actually captured Strasbourg and defined the modern borders of what Alsace is today and made it an entirely French state. Then we fast forward just a little bit to the French Revolution, which happened in 1789. France abolished feudalism and created departments, in effect provinces, that divided the country along geographical and political borders. And this is when Alsace, or in Alsace, we see the divide of the Haute and Bas Rhine, which when we're looking at the region through a wine lens, become quite important because that's when you start getting to a more advanced level and you start referring to villages as being part of the Haute or the Bas Rhine. It's sort of this dividing line between the middle of the region. For example, you might note that the southern winemaking town of Rangen is located in the Haute Rhine, which it seems like a bit, little bit of a misnomer if you speak French because Haute means top, but what we're talking about is following the river. So the Haute Rhine is actually higher up the river and the Bas Rhine is actually lower down the river. So you have the Bas Rhine on top and the Haute Rhine on the bottom. This brings us many years later to the start of the Franco-Prussian War, which began in 1870. In 1871, Alsace and its neighboring province Lorraine were annexed by Germany, or rather at that time the Prussian Empire, and became under the control of the Kaiser. Alsatians were forbidden from speaking French and permitted to only speak German. And many Alsatians fled the region because of this. They immigrated uh, primarily to Algeria and interestingly enough, Southern Ontario, which is also known for growing Riesling. During this time, Alsace remained a part of Germany until after the First World War. At the end of World War I, the states of Alsace and Lorraine declared themselves an independent republic. and autonomous by the mayor of Strasbourg himself. This, however, was very short-lived. Just two weeks after declaring independence, the region was retaken by French troops and once more declared part of France. The burgeoning territory pleaded its case with the newly formed League of Nations as they wanted to remain a sovereign state and exist independent from both France and Germany. But in 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was formalized, borders were drawn all across Europe, and Alsace was politically again part of France. At this time, speaking German was banned, and French became the only language allowed to be used for business and taught in schools. Then we fast forward just a little bit to another world war, World War II, and Alsace was once again occupied by Germany. Hitler's Reich believed that Alsace was and always had been part of the German Empire. They viewed themselves as liberators, taking back what should have been theirs all along. 
Alsace was merged with the German province of Baden, just east of its borders, and was considered to be part of Germany rather than a occupied portion of France. 130,000 conscripts were recruited from Alsace to fight for the Germans during the war, and Alsatians coined the term malgré nous for these young men, which translates into against our will. Many of these soldiers ended up prisoners of war in North Africa or in Soviet Russia, and their captors liberated them and conscripted them to fight for their own allied armies against the Nazis. At the end of the Second World War, Alsace was once again unified with France and has remained this way since 1945. But Alsatians still have a very unique and hybridized culture, which is why I think it's really important to acknowledge all that history because they spent so much of their time being neither German nor French that even to this day, they consider themselves to be Alsatian. They speak a dialect unique to the region called, not surprisingly, Alsatian, which is taught in schools, but is not mandatory for all students. In the book Wine and War, um, there's a really poignant um, story about a family who had a grandfather who was only allowed to speak German in school, a father who was only allowed to speak French, and a child that was only allowed to speak German again, and then his child who went back to speaking French. And this is how many times the languages kind of crossed over. Strasbourg is located right along the border of Germany and right tucked into the northern tip of France, and it's the capital of Alsace. After World War II, it was chosen to be the seat of the European Parliament, which seems fitting given the culture and history of the region. Now it is where policy and politics in Europe are decided, and after that long history of war, focuses on European economics and diplomacy. The Alsatian emblem is the stork, and if you are there, you can look up and see that almost all of the buildings are built with stork nests on the roof. It's incredibly picturesque. In fact, Alsace is so beautiful and so picturesque that the city of Colmar, notably one of the driest cities in France with the least precipitation, was the model for Disney's Beauty and the Beast. They actually sent animators to the village to sketch and draw the buildings as inspirations. So when you watch those opening scenes in that movie, you'll see kind of a little slice of what Alsace looks like. Or you can also just Google it. Um, but the buildings and architecture are very iconic and they represent this really Franco-Germanic style. So now we know a little bit about how we got there, but let's talk about why this area is great for wine. Like all great wine regions in the world, it doesn't just happen. There has to be something there that makes it good for growing grapes, which is why when you're learning about wine, you really need to kind of know and understand the place. The most notable feature in Alsace is the Vosges Mountains. They're considered to be a, again, air quotations here, low mountain range. But this is really a point of comparison when you think of some of the higher mountain ranges in the world, like the nearby Alps, which are very high. But this doesn't stop the Vosges from creating what is known as a rain shadow. And a rain shadow basically works like this. Clouds and rain form over the Atlantic Ocean and they move across France. They move across the Loire Valley, passing over the Pays Nantais, a very wet region, which we'll talk about when we cover the Loire Valley. They blow over Paris, Chablis, and Champagne. And then these rain clouds hit the Vosges Mountains and they become trapped. The elevation of the mountains stop them in their tracks. 
the effect being that the west side of the mountain receives a lot of rain, and the eastern side, the one we're talking about in this podcast, the one where they grow wine, receives hardly any rain at all. It's only the most persistent and largest of rainy weather systems that will actually make it to the other side of the Vosges. So when you hear about a rain shadow, this is what they're talking about. Hot, dry regions that are protected by mountains, and Alsace fits this bill. And this happens all over the world. Washington State is a really great example for this, when you have the Cascade Mountains that block rain coming from the Pacific Ocean, and the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia exemplifies it really well as well. The Rhine River runs between the valley of the Vosges Mountains and the Black Forest Mountains, and it also serves as a border between France and Germany. And this valley channels uh, the Fohn Wind, F-O-E-H-N, which along the rain shadow, along with the rain shadow, helps keep this region exceptionally dry and free of what you would call in the wine world disease pressure, um, faced by other wine growing regions where the rain will lead to mold and rot in the vines. Mist and fog that comes up from the Rhine River has a favorable effect, however, in this amount of moisture allows for the formation of noble rot, otherwise known as botrytis otherwise known as what we like to call in the wine world a good mold, which grape growers would cultivate and make specific kind of wines from, most notably sweet wines. The mold works in a certain way where it kind of clings to the grape and punctures slightly the skin of the grape, letting out just a little bit of the juice. And this concentrates the flavors and textures of the grape and leaves it with a distinct set of flavors that can be attributed to this kind of rot, the rot that we like to call noble rot. And the flavors are very reminiscent of like candied orange peel, marmalade, mushroom, and saffron. It's actually really, really delicious, and a lot of the great wines or great sweet wines of the world have been affected by this particular kind of, I hate to call it a mold because that sounds so negative, but this kind of rot. It's actually really delicious. Alsace was the last of the larger wine-growing uh, regions in France to receive its AOC status. It didn't happen until 1962. Then, in 1965, they began the addition of the Alsace Grand Cru's. Unlike Burgundy or Champagne, there is no premier crew in Alsace yet. There are always kind of rumblings of the idea, but as of the moment that I'm recording this podcast, it does not exist. Grand Cru in Alsace essentially denotes the best geographical sites for growing wine. And up until now, there are 51 Grand Cru sites in Alsace. Of course, you could go online and try to memorize them all, but that would be a lot of work and, again, uh, a lot of flashcards. The best way to think about the Grand Cru's of Alsace are to identify them with important producers and identify those which are slightly different from others. Uh, One of these is Schlossberg. Located in the Bahrain, it was the first ever location to be designated Grand Cru, and that happened in 1975. The most recent Grand Cru to be added was a Grand Cru called Cape for Cough, and that happened in 2007. A year later, they changed the rules of Alsace again and decreed by law that all Rieslings had to be made in a dry style. 
and everyone knows somebody who won't drink Riesling because they think it's sweet. So if you're looking for a dry expression of the grape, Alsace is a really amazing place to explore. Alsace is also one of the only AOCs in France that has a long history of actually putting the name of the grape on the bottle, something you really won't find in places like Burgundy, the Rhone, or the Loire Valley, which we talk about in my French Wine Law episode. I feel like I've said a lot of dates already in this episode, but I'm just going to keep going with them because, I don't know, why not? So when Alsace became an AOP in 1962, they identified four grapes that were notably suited to being grown in the region, and these are called the four noble grapes of Alsace. They are Riesling, of course, Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, and Muscat. Do they grow other grapes in Alsace? Yes, absolutely. But of the 51 Grand Cru's of Alsace, they mainly use these four grapes. Of course, there are a few exceptions. Kate Verkoff, the most recent Grand Cru, allows for the inclusion of Sylvaner. In Altenberg de Bergheim, another Grand Cru, the producer Marcel Deus makes wines from field blends, which he co-ferments basically, as I like to describe it, a hodgepodge of grapes that are found in his vineyards. So they might not always adhere to those four particular grapes. A very old and hands-off way of selecting grapes for wine. However, as a general rule, most of the Grand Cru's are using these four grapes. Riesling, a very famous white grape with high acid, high-toned lime and citrus flavors mixed with a little bit of green apple. Many people say they can get a little bit of hint of like gasoline or plastic, plasticiness on the nose. That's when you kind of have sommeliers say dumb things like, sorry, not dumb, say things like garden hose or tennis ball, but it has that kind of weird plasticiness. Um, and that's usually brought out through age, but can also be brought out through a, a range of other factors. There's Pinot Gris, the sort of the flower bomb of grapes, and this is all peach and nectarine with like peony and deep dried yellow flowers and candied lemon peel. This is not quite as high acid as Riesling. It lies more in the medium range. Uh, Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris are in fact the same grape, but Alsatian Pinot Gris rarely tastes like its Italian counterpart. Usually in Alsace, these wines are made off dry and very rich, whereas Pinot Grigios are made dry, light, and crisp, which just goes to show the versatility of this amazing grape. You have Gewurztraminer, which is highly complex. It can be made in a range of styles from sweet to dry, but all wines made from this medium acidity grape have really beautiful tropical notes like lychee and mango and dried pineapple. There's also a real distinct note of rose water and red flowers in Gewurztraminer, which make it a great drink to drink with rich food. Like if you think about sort of things like foie gras or Alsatian sausage. And then you have Muscat. Although noble, it only makes up a very tiny percentage of the plantings in Alsace. It is a grape that's known actually for having the aroma of grapes, which is a little bit unusual in the wine world. And you can also find things like orange oil and pear blossom. It's complex and usually made dry, even though when you smell it, it smells like it's going to taste sweet. 20% of all the white wine in France comes from Alsace. 
but they do make red wine, and the only red wine that they really grow there is Pinot Noir. They also make Cremant in Alsace, a sparkling wine made in the traditional champagne method, but that's aged on lees for a little bit less time than champagne. Cremants from Alsace are great value and among some of the great sparkling wines of France. Usually made from Pinot Blanc and Chardonnay, they do grow Chardonnay in Alsace, but it's permitted to only ever be put into Cremant. You would never find an Alsatian still wine Chardonnay. There are also a number of really world-class sweet wines that come from Alsace. The best ones are known as, by acronym, SGN and VT, which stand for Selection des Grenobles and Vendage Tardive. Selection des Grenobles literally translates to the selection of noble berries. These are wines that are harvested from grapes that have been affected by noble rot that really delicious and favorable grape mold that we talked about just earlier. The individual grapes are plucked one by one once they have resonated from the mold, and these wines get really sweet. The sweetest expression of these wines can be up to 306 residual grams of sugar per liter. When you compare them to the other sweet wines of the world, like port for example, this is a lot as even the sweetest port wine usually maxes out around 130 grams per liter. So we're talking very, very sweet wines when we talk about SGN wines. They are also incredibly expensive. It takes a lot of luck to get the ideal amount of noble rod, of course, and it also takes a lot of labor to pick off individual grapes in the vineyard. These are the upper echelon of the world's great sweet wines. Vendage Tardive wines are also quite sweet, though slightly less so than their counterpart, the SGN wines. They can also be affected by noble rot, but often a little bit less so, because if you have that ideal amount of noble rot, you're really going to want to make an SGN wine as opposed to a VT wine. Grapes for these wines are usually left on the vine to dry out a little past the average date of harvest. In Alsace, they call this passeriage, which literally basically translates into passing time. As the grapes become raisins on the vine, these wines can clock up to about 270 grams per liter of sugar, again making this a very sweet dessert wine. Because they might not have as much noble rot as SGN, these retain some of their varietal characteristics. Wines from Noble Rot often taste, like I said before, like dried apricot, marmalade, and saffron, whereas Vendage Tardive, made of Gewurztraminer, will still have a bit of that rose water and lychee we talked about. And that's kind of the crux of what makes these two wines different. SGN wines will have more of the Noble Rot flavors, and VT wines will taste more like the grape that they came from. I know that was a lot of information, and I hope you're still with me. We just covered a lot, and anyone who's listening and wants to really nerd out with me probably wants to talk about soil right now, and I didn't really cover it, mostly because there's just too much to cover, and we will go into further detail the next time I do an Alsace session, because I am going to do a follow-up episode to this one. All you need to know for the time being is that when you're talking about soil in Alsace, there's a lot of different kinds, and I mean a lot. Like if you had an exam and they asked you how many, like what the soil type of Alsace was, you would literally just say 
many because there's so many. So I'd really like to just take this episode out and talk about a couple of the people that are making wine in Alsace. Of course, there are tons and tons of producers to explore, but Alsace is one of those great regions because you can pick up a $20 bottle of Riesling, and I live in Canada, so it may be even less expensive for you in your market, but you can still try something special at that price point. A few extra dollars on one of these producers will be well worth it. And the producers from Alsace, as in most regions, have a variety of wines from their entry level to their terroir-driven single cruise and grand cruise, which can become a little bit more pricey. So the options are there for you to explore. One of the masters of Alsace is Marcel Dees. He's an influential winemaker and figure in the wine industry, and he has his own Wikipedia page, as I mentioned. Uh, I love fact-checking on Wikipedia. And this estate has been in his family since the mid-1700s. They have been growing wine in the Altenberg de Bergheim uh, Grand Cru site, located in the Haute Rhine in the southern half of Alsace for that long. The Deus family is a proponent of low-intervention, organic, and biodynamic winemaking. And they do something that's called field blends, or what they like to call vin de terroir. And they're made of different grapes, which are grown in the same vineyard, vinified together to make one wine. And this is something that the estate is known for and was cultivated by Deus's grandfather, the late Marcel Deus, because they're all, I think, called Marcel Deus, upon returning to Alsace after World War II. They found that many of the vineyards there had been destroyed, and out of necessity, they began filling in the gaps in these vineyards with different grapes which meant there could be one single vineyard with many different varieties growing on it. Because of this, the current Marcel Deus was growing Grand Cru wine, but was not labeling it as such, because he didn't have a varietal to label it with, which is for the most part illegal in Alsace. And in 2005, Deus petitioned to have his field blend retain their Grand Cru status without putting the variety on the label. And he won. So now you can find Grand Cru bottles of Altenberg de Bergheim that don't tell you the grapes inside. Though you probably have a pretty good idea of what they could be after listening to this podcast, maybe. Marcel Deus makes outstanding wines. And if you can get your hands on one, I really highly recommend. He's a very uh, esoteric and fun producer. And I also really recommend going on his website because he kind of writes this like cosmic poetry and he's just a an interesting kind of weird guy uh, another great producer is Zin Humbrecht and that's a producer that I love I hold it very close to my heart I have quite a few bottles of Zin Humbrecht in my own cellar um, again note the Germanic influences in this name it sounds very German Zin Humbrecht And this is a relatively young estate compared to the Deus family in Alsace, only having started in the 1950s. However, the family can trace their wine-growing roots in the region, again, of course, back to the 1600s, something that is very commonplace for Alsatians. Their winery is based in a place called Turkheim in the Haute Rhine, but they have Gronker holdings all over Alsace, notably in Hengst, which is in the very, very south, and also in Brand. Zinhumbrek makes a wine called Clos Interben, which is a vineyard site 
that is Grand Cru adjacent and considered to be one of the great vineyards of Alsace. It grows Riesling, Gewurztraminer, and Pinot Gris. This is an exceptional vineyard that makes exceptional wines from right outside the Rangen Grand Cru at the southernmost tip of Alsace. These are two producers that I just like to highlight, but there are so many amazing producers in Alsace. Actually, tonight I'm drinking a Trimbach Pinot Blanc. I thought I bought the Trimbach Riesling, and then when I brought it home, I realized I had just saw the words Trimbach on the label, grabbed it, and it was a Pinot Blanc, which fits the bill because it was a little bit less expensive than I thought it was going to be anyways. But it cost me, I think, $20, $19. And it's really, really delicious wine to tape this podcast to. I'm really enjoying it. So the value in Alsace is there. And if you're looking to explore a region with lots to offer, don't let the flute shape of the bottle fool you. A lot of people, when they see that long, tall bottle, they immediately think sweet wine. And that's just not the case. They're making such a variety of delicious wines. And that's where I'm going to leave Alsace for now. I am going to do a follow-up episode where we nerd out a little bit more about single vineyards and single, single crews and producers and all of that. And, of course, soil types. Everyone wants to talk about soil. Um, but I think that's a really good uh, place to leave it. And next time we'll talk... Uh, not next episode, but next time I do an Alsace episode, we'll talk more about Sylvaner and Cremant producers. And I hope this was helpful to you, and I hope that if you are studying to be a sommelier, or you want to be a sommelier, or you're just interested in knowing more about wine, this shed a little bit of light onto your journey. If you're a wine lover, I hope this, you know, prompts you to pick up a bottle of Riesling or an Alsatian wine. You can email me uh, at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. Please be nice. And the artwork for this podcast was done by Callie Lauren, a local Toronto artist. You can check her out on Instagram. Her handle is at K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N. And until we meet again, I hope you drink something delicious. Cheers. Cheers.